Welcome to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 18, Texian San Antonio. I'm Brandon Seal. I'm a city San Antonio, tonight I'm looking at your lovely life. When the Alamo fell on March 6th, 1836, San Antonians didn't give up the fight. After successfully leading the immortal 32 from Gonzales into the Alamo just a few days earlier, John El Colorado Smith returned with a second relief effort on March 7th. He was turned back, however, by Santa Ana's Dragoons, just as Juan Seguin's relief attempt had been a few days prior. On March 11th, it was two San Antonians that brought the news to East Texas of the Alamo's fall, and it was Def Smith, that famed scout and citizen of San Antonio since 1821, who discovered the Alamo's non-combatants plodding sadly across the prairie just a few days later. There was only one thing now standing between East Texans and Santa Ana's advancing army. Juan Seguin and 24 or so of his old San Antonio Rangers. The Texas Provisional Government ordered Seguin to slow down Santa Ana's Centralist Army and to leave no one and no thing behind, while the rest of the population fled east in the so-called runaway scrape. For more than a month, and across a field of action that spanned more than 200 miles, Seguin outmaneuvered some of the best-trained cavalry in the world and despoiled the countryside, leaving no forage, shelter, bridge, or ferry behind. His tactics effectively neutralized Santa Ana's famed dragoons for the rest of the campaign, leaving them without nourishment, without mobility, and without the ability to protect Santa Ana's lines of communication. This made it possible in early April of 1836 for Def Smith to capture one of Santa Ana's unprotected messengers, who carried with him a detailed accounting of the Centralist Army's strength and disposition of forces. Seguin and his rangers soon confirmed that Santa Ana's 1,400-man main force, with Santa Ana in command, had split off from the rest of the army and was now without artillery or cavalry support. Acting on this intelligence, Def Smith rode around Santa Ana's entire army, which had just made camp on San Jacinto Creek where it entered the future Houston ship channel, and destroyed the bridge that was their only escape. On April 21st, 1836, 930 Texians, the name by which we refer to Republic of Texas-era Texans, surprised Santa Ana's exhausted Centralist force, which by now had covered just shy of 1,000 miles in about three months. The Centralists were caught entirely unprepared, and most broke into panicked flight. Only Santa Ana's right wing, where several of his elite units were camped, put up an organized resistance. They were met, however, by the Texian left and by Juan Seguin and his San Antonio Rangers. These were some of the most experienced soldiers in the entire Texian army at this point, heirs to a hundred years of frontier warfare and participants in almost every major engagement of the Texas Revolution over the past year. And they didn't fail now. They absorbed the centralist volley fired at them within pistol range and then charged, shouting, Remember the Alamo! and offering the centralist soldiers the same mercy that the centralist had offered the Alamo's defenders. Overall, the Centralists fared far better that day than the Texians would have had the tables been turned. The bloodletting was terrible, to be sure, but some 400 Centralists survived the battle, including Santa Ana himself. Texas Vice President Lorenzo de Zavala's son was on hand to translate for his father's old foe when he sat down with Sam Houston to negotiate. And though Vice President Lorenzo de Zavala would die just a few months later from pneumonia, he would live just long enough to see the tyrant humbled and the new Republic of Texas made free. Santa Ana recognized Texas's independence in exchange for his own life. Yet it remained to be seen if the several thousand centralists still under arms in Texas would respect his agreement. It fell, once again, to Juan Seguin to see things through. Seguin was commissioned a lieutenant colonel and given command of a battalion, built around his core two dozen or so old San Antonians. Seguin's tiny force pushed cautiously westward, and at the same time, he sent word ahead into San Antonio, back to Coahuila, and down into central Mexico of Santa Ana's defeat. The commotion caused by the news was enough to stir rumblings of revolt from Santa Ana's opponents and intimations of mutiny within the centralist forces still remaining in Texas. 
Ultimately, it was this propaganda campaign that liberated the vast majority of Texas, more so than any feats of arms from his ranging battalion, which arrived to San Antonio on June 4, 1836. With their army collapsing all around them and the local population growing restless, centralist commanders yielded to Seguin's entreaties to leave the town without violence. Coincidentally, it would be Lieutenant Castaneda, the same officer who had been sent to take the cannon in Gonzales, Texas eight months before, who would lead the last 18 centralist soldiers out of town. Seguin and his battalion would escort and harass the centralists all the way to the Rio Grande, just 14 months after they had crossed that same river in opposition to centralist usurpations in Coahuila and set off the chain of events that would lead to Texas independence. San Antonians celebrated their newfound independence, even as they feared that the fight with their cousins to the south was not over. And their celebration was tempered by the sad state of everything around them. The town was in ruins. Everything of value had been carried off by one of the other armies that had passed through over the last eight months. Much of the town had been deliberately destroyed by the occupying centralists to prevent it from being used again as a defensive position, including the entire Alamo compound, save the chapel and the long barracks. Slowly and resolutely, San Antonians began to put their lives back together. In September, the proud old city council convened once again, conducting its meetings now in both Spanish and English, and elected the great Alamo messenger John El Colorado Smith as mayor. On December 22nd, Bear County was organized, constituting all of West Texas, eastern New Mexico, the Panhandle, and parts of Colorado and Wyoming. And in January of 1837, San Antonio was officially chartered under the Republic of Texas and renamed San Antonio. That's right. Recall that the technical name of the central city of San Antonio's many communities had been San Fernando de Bejar, referred to by most as simply Bear. The January 1837 census revealed 278 property owners in San Antonio, out of a population of a little under 2,000, many of them old San Antonio families, but almost a quarter now with Anglo surnames. The same men from the same families continued to play prominent roles. Juan Zambrano would become head of the Bear County Land Commission. Juan Seguin, Antonio Menchaca, and Samuel Maverick would serve as mayors in the first years of the Texian Republic. The old Federalist José Antonio Navarro would become the first congressman from San Antonio. And his uncle and fellow signer of the Texas Declaration of Independence, José Francisco Ruiz, would become the first senator. A few French, Greek, and Russian names soon appeared on the tax rolls, as well as a large influx of Irish ones, drawn to the city's strong Catholic culture and lack of an established elite harboring any old prejudices against the Sons of Ire. John Tuig, the old merchant who had been in San Antonio since 1830, remained, and newcomers like Edward Dwyer and Brian Callahan soon made an impact as well, each of whom married into the old Ramon family and each of whom became mayor. The Irish in particular favored the area just north of Alamo Plaza, an area that would come to be known as Irish Flats, and where many of the city's first multi-story buildings would be constructed. Under the New Republic, San Antonio's economic prospects immediately improved, which in truth didn't take much, given that it had always been a comparatively poor town. What helped San Antonians most was when the new Texian government acted on one of San Antonians' oft-repeated petitions to make available the seemingly limitless supply of land all around them. Indeed, every head of household living in Texas prior to the Declaration of Texas's Independence on March 2, 1836, was now entitled to a league and a labor, or 4,600 acres of land. This created new opportunity for anyone well-capitalized enough to survey and patent a claim, and even those who couldn't develop these so-called headright grants themselves were able to sell them off for a nice little windfall. In the first two years of the Republic of Texas, 2.3 million acres were patented in Bear County alone by some 620 deeds, more land than had been released from the public domain in Texas in the entire period of Mexican or Spanish rule. San Antonio also remained a center of international trade, only now San Antonians had unfettered and untaxed access to the burgeoning markets of North America. Business boomed, and whereas San Antonio had always been plagued by underemployment, under the Texian flag, San Antonians found more opportunities than ever for work on the new lands, in the new shops, or along these new trade routes as freighters. Yet for all that things stayed the same, or even improved in some respects, 
there were troubling signs as well. Many middle-class Tejanos felt pinched. Unable to speak the language of their new trading partners and unfamiliar with the new legal system being set up around them, some left, settling on the south side of the Rio Grande or even in Laredo, which was only nominally under Texian control. And some new Texians initiated efforts in the legislature to dispossess old Tejanos of their lands by nullifying Spanish and Mexican land grants. Senator José Francisco Ruiz and Congressman José Antonio Navarro eventually beat back these efforts with the support of the majority of Anglos, many of whom held or had acquired lands under the Spanish and Mexican governments themselves. And this wasn't the last of the legal challenges that the fragile new multi-ethnic republic faced. In 1838, the legislature debated whether being white should be a requirement to vote in the new republic. José Antonio Navarro's impassioned and clever arguments, notably, he compared these kind of rights-depriving initiatives to the kind of things that the Mexican government would have done, just might have swayed the majority, which ultimately did extend suffrage to all men. Except, of course, for, quote, Africans, whom everyone agreed had no business voting. It would take another war to resolve that issue. Nevertheless, these and other efforts were examples of San Antonians' lasting contributions to justice in Texas. And they waged these fights through a translator and within a legislative system that they were learning on the fly. That is, neither Ruiz, Navarro, nor Seguin spoke English confidently. One of their longest-running and ultimately unsuccessful efforts was to get the Republic of Texas to publish its laws in Spanish. San Antonio's legislators, Tejano and Anglo, never let up, and they never ceased to remind other Texians of San Antonians' contributions to this new republic. And this was important because the hard and simple fact was that San Antonio still felt a little foreign to most Texians. Some were outright suspicious of its loyalties, and once Mexican forces began to raid across the Rio Grande in October of 1836, even well-meaning Texians were fearful that the town might fall back into Mexican hands. At one point, the commander-in-chief of the Texian army ordered San Antonio burned to the ground, and only Juan Seguin's vocal opposition and entreaties to his friend, President Sam Houston, prevented the order from being carried out. Despite the town being saved, the New Republic struggled to actually make the town safe. In the 1790s, San Antonians and Comanches had reached a sort of détente. They lived under a fragile but generally respected peace that saw San Antonio become the Comanche's principal trading center. They developed a special relationship, hunting buffalo together, and in some cases even living together. Now Senator José Francisco Ruiz, for example, had lived amongst them for eight years while fleeing Spanish royalist terror, and possibly had even taken a Comanche wife during that time. Yet new Texian arrivals lacked the context and lacked the history of these relationships, and considered the frequent trading visits by Comanches to San Antonio as inviting trouble. The Texian government decided to cut off Comanche access to the town. This placed the Comanches in a rather desperate situation, as they had come to depend on San Antonio for many goods that had become indispensable to their mode of living. When they couldn't get what they needed by trading for it, they resorted to stealing it, and these raids incited a terrible cycle of violence. In March of 1837, the grandson of that old friend of the Comanches, José Francisco Ruiz, was killed and mutilated outside of town, a clear statement of the Comanches' sense of betrayal by their old trading partners. Then, in June 1838, a Comanche band attacked San Antonio and killed four citizens over the course of a three-day-long campaign of terror. Texian leaders decided that something needed to be done, and the assignment went as it always did in these early years of the Republic, to Juan Seguin and his ranging battalion. Seguin's battalion had continued in service since 1836 and was modeled directly after the old San Antonio Compañías Volantes that many of his oldest Tejano rangers had actually served in prior to the Texas Revolution. They were a sort of mounted Minutemen, citizen soldiers that worked by day, cleaned their weapons by night, and were expected to provide their own string of horses at a moment's notice if called into action. As we've discussed in previous episodes, self-provisioned light cavalrymen had a long and noble tradition in the Hispanic world, dating back to the feudal jinetes of old Spain, and hardened now by generations of warfare against the Plains Indians of North America. It was through service in this unit that the first Texas Anglos, to corrupt author Stephen Hardin's phrase, quote, learned to ride like Mexicans, end quote. 
Recall that light cavalry wasn't really an Anglo-American thing until they got to San Antonio. There's actually several sad episodes in the first years of Stephen F. Austin's colony where these Anglo woodsmen tried to pursue mounted Plains Indians on foot with predictably poor results. Over several years in the saddle with Seguin and his men, however, Texas Anglos had come to embrace the identity and the ideology of these modern-day Knights of the Plains. They began to tack their mounts with Mexican or Western saddles with lariats tied off to their saddle horns and, quote, vied with each other in the absurdity of their dress, end quote, to use Ranger Rip Ford's phrase, dressing themselves, well, like old San Antonians, in wide-brimmed hats, high-shanked leather boots, and brush-popping chapareros, or chaps. In late 1839, these Texas Rangers, as they would come to be known, rode out on the largest retaliatory campaign that had been mounted out of San Antonio in a generation. 111 men, half Tejano, half Anglo, marched out, supported by a company of Indian auxiliaries, ironically, most of them descendants of the Lipan Apaches against whom San Antonians had waged the war of extermination nearly a century before. Seguin took half the men west and flushed the Comanches out of the areas around modern-day Bandera and Uvalde. The rest of the men went north, including one squadron commanded by a wiry young Tennessean named Jack Hayes. Jack Hayes had arrived in Texas in early 1836 at the age of 20 to participate in the Texas Revolution, which he finished as a sergeant stationed in San Antonio with Seguin's unit. He became a student of frontier warfare, riding along with the ranging battalion throughout the campaigns of 1836, 37, and 38 against Mexican incursions and Comanche raids. And in 1839, he made his own important contribution to frontier warfare. Sometime in 1839, the Republic of Texas had acquired some early Colt Patterson No. 5 revolving pistols for their fledgling navy. When the Texas Navy basically disbanded that year, Hayes ended up with a dozen or so of the five-shot, 36-caliber revolvers, which he distributed to his men. They soon had a chance to put them to good use. While riding along the Pernalis River in early 1840, he and 14 men were ambushed by 70 Comanche warriors. It was the kind of battle that the Comanches lived for, and the kind of battle that their opponents rarely survived. And yet when the Comanches initiated their attack, Hayes' squadron charged them back, 14 men against 70. They pulled out their revolvers and began to fire. A few Comanches fell to the Rangers' first volleys, as could be expected. Then more fell. And still, Hayes' men kept coming. And they kept shooting. The Comanches waited in vain for the moment when the Rangers would have to dismount and reload, but it never came. Instead, the Rangers continued to pick their targets carefully and ride down the Comanches individually now as their formation fell apart. The battle turned into a rout. Hayes and his squadron not only escaped the ambush, they emerged victorious. It was one of the most resounding defeats of a Comanche force in living memory, and combined with the presence of the Rangers' terrifying new weapon, it brought the horse lords of the Great Plains to the negotiating table. March 19, 1840, was set for a great peace council to be held between Comanche chiefs and representatives of the new Texian government in San Antonio. On that day, 12 chiefs and 21 warriors with 32 women and children paraded into town in their finest. Some of the Comanche children playfully entertained the townsfolk with tricks performed with bows and arrows, and old San Antonio vecinos and young Comanche warriors engaged in some impromptu tests of horsemanship in the streets. Yet when the plainsmen walked into the old Casas Reales on Main Plaza, known now in English as the Council House, they were met by looks of unrestrained hatred from the Texian representatives there. This surprised and annoyed the Comanches, who felt like they had come in good faith and in the spirit of re-establishing the special relationship that San Antonians and Comanches had long enjoyed. The problem was that the Texian government had placed a condition on these peace negotiations, that the Comanches return all Texian captives in their possession. To the irritation of the Texian commissioners, these Comanches had brought with them only two such captives, one boy and one woman, whose nose had been burned completely off and who was at that moment recounting her horror story of physical and sexual abuse at the hands of her captors. The Texian commissioners demanded to know where the other captives were. An irritated Comanche chief explained to the commissioners something that most San Antonians already knew, 
that there was no such thing as a single Comanche nation, and that one chief couldn't oblige another chief to do anything, and that the captives that they saw before them today were all that were in their band's possession and all that they would be getting back. Quote, how do you like that answer? End quote. The chief asked when he finished explaining, either in direct provocation of the Texians or in an extremely poor choice of words. The Texians snapped. They stood and locked the doors. The commissioners informed the Comanches that they were all now prisoners until such time as the other captives should be returned. The Comanches, who had, after all, come to San Antonio under a flag of truce, struggled to understand what the Texians were doing. Some tried to leave in indignation, but they were forcibly detained. They began to whisper to one another. They had been tricked, they soon believed. Tensions heightened. Steel flashed. Shots fired. War cries rang out. The little Comanche children entertaining townfolk in the street now knocked their bows with real arrows and started firing on their admirers. San Antonians fired back. The council house puffed smoke from all sides as shots ricocheted around inside the limestone walls of the building. The fight spilled out into the street, the Comanches slicing their way through town with knives and arrows, the San Antonians firing wildly after them. When the smoke cleared, seven San Antonians were dead, including the Bear County judge and sheriff. Yet the Comanches had the worst of it. All the Comanche warriors and chiefs in the delegation had been killed, in addition to three women and children. Twenty-nine survivors were taken prisoner and moved to Mission San Jose, whose famed walls still stood sentinel over the south side of town. A message was sent to the other Comanche tribes that they had twelve days to return sixteen specific captives that they still held. They responded to the demand by slow-roasting alive thirteen of those sixteen captives. Back on the plains, the Comanches called a war council. There, they decided that these new arrivals perhaps needed a demonstration of Comanche strength. Even the colonists that had come with Stephen F. Austin in the 1820s had been the benefactors of the hard-won peace of the 1780s and 90s and had no real concept of what the Comanche Empire was actually capable of. And so in August of 1840, 400 Comanche warriors mounted up and rode right through the heart of the new Texian nation. They carefully avoided San Antonio, but on August 6th, they sacked Victoria, and on August 8th, they burned the port of Linville to the ground. The Comanches might very well have made it all the way back to the plains unpunished as well, had they not been laden down with so much loot. Instead, a unit of Texas Rangers under a new captain named Ben McCullough caught up to them near Lockhart on August 12th, stripped them of their booty, inflicted some casualties, and sent them retreating back to the plains. The so-called Comanche Great Raid of 1840 would leave 25 Texians dead and hundreds of thousands of dollars of property destroyed. Comanche raids would continue with increased hostility for the next four years, answered by the ranger station out of San Antonio, where Captain Jack Hayes and Captain Ben McCullough now held command. On June 9, 1844, while on patrol just north of Bernie, Texas, Hayes, McCullough, and 13 other rangers were suddenly surrounded by 200 Comanches. The Comanches licked their lips at the opportunity before them to eliminate the most effective battle commanders in all of Texas in a single battle. Yet Captain Hayes used the small size of his unit to his advantage. He managed to maneuver his outnumbered rangers behind the Comanche attackers, where he then ordered his men to dismount, steady their rifles, and make each shot count. Fifteen well-placed shots fired in unison. The Comanches looked around and lashed out in all directions, looking for the source of the rifle fire. The ranger's second volley gave away their position, but brought down another dozen Comanche warriors. The Comanches then charged, but the ranger's disciplined rifle fire repulsed them twice. When the Comanche chief himself fell, the attack dissipated, and the rangers now took the initiative. They remounted, drew their terrible repeating revolvers, and worked up their horses to a gallop. Powder burn em, Hayes yelled, encouraging his men to get as close as possible before firing. More than 50 Comanches lay dead after the Battle of Walker's Creek, as it would become known, compared to only one dead ranger. And it was one of the few times in recorded history that Comanches left their dead on the field. After the battle, they retreated back to the plains and out of reach, for the moment, of the Texas Rangers.
In the early years of the Texas Rangers, I count at least 125 Tejanos who served in the ranks, plus at least four officers. And many, if not most of these men, were from San Antonio. The Republic of Texas had lost much when they lost San Antonians' old special relationship with the Comanches, yet they had also gained much as well from the fighting techniques that San Antonians taught them. Which was good, because in 1842, another enemy familiar to old San Antonians came marching up the Camino Real. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review. Because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend Noel McKay for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. For this episode, I have to recommend T.R. Fahrenbach's works. Every historian of San Antonio, or of Texas for that matter, has to contend with Fahrenbach at some point. And as a San Antonian himself, he brought a wonderfully local focus to his study. His book Lone Star is a classic. Fire and Blood is a great Texas perspective on Mexican history. And Comanches informed much of what I talked about today. 